0: you're listening to potluck the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people culture and brands in asia hosted as always by scott and drago hello and welcome to potluck podcast the podcast that stirs unique flavors of people culture and brands in asia now entering season two i'm drago and i'm scott scott how's 2021 treating you so far it feels it would be even more important this year to try and stir some rich and stimulating flavors. We'd need to dig deeper, aim higher, and stir harder. Are you ready, mate?
1: I'm ready, thanks, Drago. Uh, three weeks into 2021, it's taken a little while to warm up, I must admit. Um, but enjoying establishing uh, some new routines, cutting some old ones, at least for now. Uh, and yeah, really looking forward to launching our new season today. Um, On that note, we do have some grand plans for the season two uh, of Potluck, so the mainstay of Potluck will still be our guest-driven content, an eclectic mix of of guests from around the region and beyond. But we'll be releasing every interview in three distinct parts this time, each covering a different theme. Uh, More on that with our first guest today later on. But to complement our guest interview content, we'll also be releasing a monthly morsel. That's a chance for Drago and I to go off-piste a little, uh, you know, chew the fat over something topical and juicy. So Drago, enough of the agenda, let's dive right in. Yes, let's dig in.
0: We're very, very pleased to welcome Katie Drakey. Katie, thank you so much for coming to stir the pot with us.
2: It's my pleasure, smells good in here.
0: Right, before we get into proper stirring mode, uh, I think a brief uh, intro is in order. As much as a brief intro can get the job done in Katie's case, but let's try. (laughs) Uh, Katie is a global strategy and innovation consultant. Most recently, she spent seven years at Nike working on global brand innovation, global media, Nike membership and Nike women. She was also in direct-to-consumer roles within the APAC region, including spending two years in Tokyo. Before that, she's worked in some traditional as well as more experimental roles at Droga5, Wyden & Kennedy, IDEO, Wexley, I'm getting short of breath here, getting your hands dirty with brands such as Coca-Cola, Honda, Nintendo, Starbucks, Adidas, to name a few. Katie says on her website, my work bridges brand, systems thinking, digital transformation and storytelling, to design emotionally meaningful and financially powerful experiences for human beings. There's a lot to stick our teeth into there, but let's start (laughs) with something that we thought you might enjoy. Uh, As you very well uh, uh, kick this off, let's extend the food metaphor further. We would like to imagine our guests as a dish. Uh, Now, think of all the experiences you've had in your career (laughs) as a recipe and imagine each role or stage on your journey as a particular ingredient that has contributed to the delicious dish that is you. What would those ingredients be? Now, mind you, it's the first time we were asking someone <laughs> this question, so feel free to answer in any way uh, you feel <laughs> like as literally or metaphorically as you as you want.
2: Okay. Well, I'm now I'm hungry, so I'm going to envision um how about this? Instead of a Mixed pot with a recipe. How about we go? We do a bento box because I just, having lived in Japan, I really love um, the delicateness of it and um, the surprise and delight of it. And so I'll say, in my bento box, <laughs> <laughs> I would probably have a flavor from a, lo- a bunch of the different places where I've lived. I'm from Seattle originally, and so maybe I would have a, a bit of salmon in one corner of the bento box. Uh, from the pacific. Um I have lived for 4 years in Amsterdam so I'd probably put something sweet like profiteroles over in that corner. Some little baby pancakes with with sweetness on top. Mm. Um, having lived in Sydney, I experienced a religious ex- <laughs> a religious experience one morning on having what I'd never had before which was the very simple but delicious toasted banana bread slathered with salty butter. And I just that became my my new morning routine um in sydney and then moving to tokyo i um tasted every type of ramen i could get my chopsticks on mm. but really it's the good basic shio ramen is my favorite so i would probably have something salty or a little container of that and then i'm in portland now and so i'd probably want to finish it off with maybe a microbrew. i don't know mm. something a little hoppy something to round it out um but really like a a some of my experiences, I'm trying to think what they might taste like. What would an experience taste like? Like maybe technology bits and bytes, it's like little samples of like popping sensation. Uh, consumer research could be um, full of coffee <laughs> and sweets on the table. Um, creative strategy has got a lot of um, tension. And so maybe something that has a little bit of zing or citrus in it um i'm also a working mom which is a big part of like the career work life experience so um, i'd have to put something maybe like uh a jambalaya or something like it's about a, a bunch of juggling <laughs> <laughs> nice and and maybe a dash of futurism where i'm i'm really obsessed with projecting into the future and trying to see, mar- see around corners and oftentimes when i get together with other folks on um like industry calls or whatever coffee clutches, we talk about what we're reading. And I I just don't like reading about marketing. I don't like reading about business. I actually like reading about the future through a fictional sense, which for me, oftentimes, if you if you get the right author, they're really talking about now through a fictional lens in the future. And you learn a lot about the now. What would that taste like? I don't know. I don't know that I've tasted it yet, but maybe I would imagine some sort of um some sort of new fruit some some sort of gene hacked banana kiwi i don't know
0: (laughs) why yeah it'll have to be a hybrid yeah
2: it would have to be a blend of something yeah
0: amazing Mm, that's so delicious (laughs) and evocative thank you very much (laughs) you're welcome we're still on the on the appetizer here Scott, (laughs) what else do we have on the menu?
1: So let's kick things off with our first theme, uh, which we're calling Lifting the Lid on Asia. Uh, Now, whether our guests are based in the region right now or have perhaps recently departed... We want to understand how they see the region from their side, whether that's looking outside in or from the inside out. Now, Katie, you first started your venture in the region down under in Sydney, Australia, as you mentioned regarding the banana bread, and then later a two-year stint in uh, in Japan, but your work spanned many Asian markets beyond those, I believe, as well. So mm. what about that experience was most appealing, but also, I guess, challenging for you? And let's maybe start off with the personal side first, if if you wouldn't mind.
2: Just to give a little context, I moved to Australia after living in Holland for four years, and it was my first time being, you know, I was, I was getting close to Asia, but, but still not quite um, deep in Asia. at that time. We had mm-hmm. clients, I had clients while I was working at Droga5 that were in um, Singapore, so we would travel for business travel to Singapore, and that those clients required a lot of consumer research in the Southeast Asia region, which was completely new, experience for me. It was thrilling and was around beer. So it was around, you know, nightlife and youth and um, different consumption habits that were really radically different in different nations. Um, and their relationships to alcohol were really different based on other cultural things. So it was just a, working on that business was a massive deep dive. It wasn't until later working at Nike that I got a chance to live in Japan, work on the Japanese market specifically for a year. And then after that, my remits expanded into Korea and also Southeast Asia and India. Um, so what does it mean personally? Like personally, I, I grew up flying around and moving around a lot. My dad was in the military and I became a little bit of like a culture junkie. I just really mm. enjoy being off balance. I enjoy being in situations where um, basically my instincts don't work and you're kind of, you are then thrust into this situation where you have to call upon all of your senses to try to help educate you very rapidly about what you're seeing and how you can um, do important things like not offend or make you know massive like social gaffes um, and also that you can show up um, as close to who you are when you're at home. The first time we moved abroad, our kids were two and five. And so I actually feel like at least in our family, I learned a lot about cultures through their experience of these cultures. Okay. And yeah. also I found that traveling with kids is a great icebreaker when you're interacting with people from other generations, whether they're like maybe older and a little grouchy and reserved. They can't <laughs> mm-hmm. be around a child. They get kind of drawn into an interaction with you. And if I was just by myself, they might prefer to just have me stay right where I was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. there was, I, I found like the the child factor was huge. I feel like it also makes time go more slowly. Like just going into the grocery store is an experience. You know, walking through the aisles and trying to figure out what are all of these things and how would a everyday citizen in this city put these things together for a meal? As a marketer, I guess I would have to speak more specifically to like where I really got to get deep in, which mm-hmm. would be maybe Australia and Japan because I lived there as a resident and made my way through the city and watched television and listened to radio and went, you know, used the local apps and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I found one interesting kind of similarity between the two of them, even though they're radically different cultures in and of their own, is that because they're islands, they kind of had this, this to certain degrees, a Galapagos effect taking place in that, like in, in Australia's example, they're so far away it didn't make a lot of sense for a brand from say england or the united states to figure out what would be the expensive logistics measures i would need to put into place in order to compete in australia mm, yeah but it just so happened during the time that we were there that there was mining was really gaining a lot of momentum there was a lot of the word cashed up Australians were being bandied about in town a lot. There's a lot more people running around the housing market just was going crazy million dollar homes that were just like falling apart. And so you're just like, okay, what's going on here? And suddenly top shop showed up on the scene. Costco showed up on the scene. Um, A grocer out of Germany showed up. And at the time from work, we were working on Qantas airlines the national carrier who competed mm. with Singapore air. Then there was Woolies and Kohl's. Those the two mm. big grocers and Telstra, which is the big telecom. Yeah. And there's one other telecom. And it felt like there was two of everything, two of every sort of major industry. And they kind of grew up together and they just kind of duke it out. And the advertising was always, for Woolies was like, what is Coles doing? (laughs) Coles is talking about fresh. So now we need to talk about fresh. We need to talk about fresh in a different way. And how can we be unique? It was never about like going into a whole new white space. It was just really bare knuckle brawling it out in the marketplace. But suddenly Costco comes in and sells book, excuse me, bulk to Australians. Mm -hmm. And then this smaller grocer comes in and takes out the bottom end and has like these little bodegas and corner markets. And suddenly, Coles and Woolies aren't looking at each other anymore. They're looking around going, what the hell's going on? And how do we compete in these new spaces when we've been just slashing at each other at the knees on prices and, you know, porn of sale marketing? It was just fascinating. So, it was just really fascinating, you know, and Japan has its own flavor of that. But even, you know, for someone like me who comes from a Western culture, it's even compounded many more times because Mm. of the density of the culture and but things that I noticed especially were things like um travel um our family having lived in a lot of different places and being from the west coast of the United States like we're we're big lovers and believers of the road trip and whenever we live somewhere we always plan multiple long-term family road trips to experience and see where we're living in Australia we flew to Darwin and drove right you know, back to uh, to Sydney again and did this three week long wow. thing. And some of my Australian colleagues were like, I haven't even done that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're more yeah. Australian than I am. But we just, we use used the road trip as kind of like our way of absorbing a place. But in Japan, it was just such a different experience. The freeways are so highly engineered and they're so beautifully maintained and they're so perfect. And they're all told very heavily. So they're very expensive. But if you go off the road to try to do like surprise and delight, oh, we'll drive through this village and see what's going on. We saw a lot of examples of where the economy had crashed um, from its heyday. And there would be the, like these abandoned theme parks and um, roadside restaurants with broken glass. And it was it was kind of like, okay, so how, how do you do the road trip here if, if going through the small cities means that they're kind of on their last breath, but staying on the main roadway means you don't actually experience all that much. Mm. Then I realized, oh yeah, this is a train culture. This is, this is a train nation. Um, and, and it's like in everyone's blood flow to the point where flying is just, uh, excuse me, training is just as expensive Mm. as flying, but people choose it because you get to get on a train in a city center and get off of a train in a city center. You don't have this expensive cab ride out into the middle of nowhere. You don't have to go through all the Security. There's all this beautiful ceremony about the the bento box that you get on the train with, mm. and your, your your glass of wine or your beer yeah. or whatever, and and you can just relax. And it's such a civilized experience. We even going skiing. We realized we went we drove the first time, and then mm-hmm. we once we had done that, we're like, why did we do that? <laughs> we should take the train. Then we can look out the window and we can relax and we can read. And when we arrive, there's a, of course there is, there's a bus that takes you straight up to to the hill. Mm -hmm. So um, I've I've got a million of little scenarios in my mind that I'm thinking of that I couldn't imagine being from anywhere else other than Japan. But a lot of them, frankly, I don't know that I totally figured them out. Um, Because again, like the culture is so rich and so dense, you think you might understand something. And a year later realize you you never had it. You, You never really did figure it out.
0: it's very interesting you used a term i thought was um, exclusively japanese you said training for the activity (laughs) of using a train (laughs) Uh, but it sounds like it sounds like japan enjoys a special place in your heart um oh yeah can we can we ask you to kind of pull the fusuma ajar a bit and kind of Mm -hmm. let us in on uh, um what is it that japan taught you about yourself and or your work. Uh, what's that unique lesson that only Japan, you mm-hmm. felt, was uh, able to offer you at the time?
2: I feel like that's one of those gifts that you get um, or rewards or returns that you get for kind of going through some of the challenges of living in a foreign country, is that you reveal yourself to yourself in a way that can be surprising Um, Maybe you're more capable than you thought you were or just something about the culture demands something of you that, at least in Japan, was really interesting for me. Japan is a a reserved culture and I'm a fairly gregarious person. I'm from America where we high five and we hug and we we speak with a lot of, you know, bold hand movements and excited voices and so what did it mean to be an American in Japan if a lot of my identifiers I needed to restrain? And I'm also a woman, and I'm I'm a strong woman. I, I have ideas. I have a point of view. But women in Japan are also very reserved. And there's a different way to be a woman in Japan that felt really hard for me to figure out. I didn't want to disarm people. I didn't want to... Um, but I also didn't want to misrepresent myself. I'm not Japanese. Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would it wouldn't be right for me to mim- you know mimic or pretend. But I did need to find a way to operate, and so I feel like I developed like this whole other side of myself, or this whole other. I don't want to say identity because that's probably mm-hmm. too much. But I learned how to like dial back. Some of my natural American tendencies and kind of the largeness of things and laughter and a way of moving through the day, you know, and become someone who is maybe a little bit more reserved, but can can still communicate with a head nod and can communicate with a flick of the eye or a really small, subtle shift of the body. Because that is the language that I could speak. I knew I wasn't going to be fluent in Japanese. I knew that reading it or writing it was going to be almost impossible. Um, But what I could do is I could learn the body language. And so I feel like I learned how to hold myself on the subway in a way that would indicate I am not a tourist. I live here. I know which side of my body to put my backpack on. And I know how... I know where to sit and where to stand during busy times. And I know that I should be, you know, waiting my turn when people exit. And just these small signals that I could hope to give to someone around me that I'm just, I'm not a passer through that I'm, that I'm, I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to get involved. Um, I think I also learned from the Japanese to be much more in sync with the rhythms of the seasons. There's such a beautiful connection about food you know, in the fall, there's pumpkin soup and it only is on the menu in fall, you know, and in spring with the blossoms and all of the ceremony that goes around that and taking the time out of your day to sit with friends and sit in that moment, knowing that each spring is special for that. Um, I don't think... I'm someone who likes to think of myself as being quite connected to nature and quite connected to those things, but I received a schooling in that, (laughs) and I think in a really positive way, Mm. you know, or illumination perhaps. Um, And then I also just really love the obsessive side of Japanese culture, Mm. like that otaku um, aspect Mm. of um, just going down the rabbit hole, unashamedly, unabashedly, everyone's allowed and encouraged almost as a part of the culture to be obsessed with something and to show your obsession through demonstration, whether that's your garden or your car or your collection of whatever it may be. And it's okay for like a grown man to collect toys or it's okay for a um, a young girl to be interested in motorcycles. Like you can be geeked out about whatever you want, I really loved that. I have things that I like to geek out about and I sometimes keep it to myself, but there I was like, oh no, like I'm going to go all the way. This is this is great. I'm in home in here. And I just really also just miss the the region. Um we got a chance because things are pretty close together. Sometimes you can yeah. see quite a lot quite quickly, so like Taiwan and Vietnam and um thailand and cambodia like going to some of these places and really understanding how different they are from each other and what makes them unique through food and sound and smell and architecture and um but yeah i do i do miss it can you tell
1: (laughs) tell?
2: (laughs) (laughs) i don't feel like i got anywhere near as deep as i would have liked to have gone uh, before i needed to return but i i'm so excited by the fact that i now have more kaleidoscope vision instead of just a single beam of light, yeah.
1: I must admit, uh, Katie, that you're, you're painting a, a picture so full of kind of texture that I really want to venture back into, into that world, you know, beyond what yep. we can experience here in Singapore. But let, let's try and tie all that together. So uh, one kind of uh, direct question to, to round this segment off is, you know, would you say Asia is overhyped?
2: Oh, no, I don't think so <laughs> at all. Um, I don't think so, not at all. Um, The things that I, the themes or I guess the takeaways are like the speed within Asia is really impressive. There's there's a lot of change happening rapidly in cities that maybe are still developing, but in the developed cities, like they are racing forward. They're embracing technology in so many surprising and interesting ways that the West, I believe, is really um, having to play a game of catch up right now. Um, also culturally their ability to move the masses and create you know it's not by that shouldn't be surprised to anyone you know like United States I'll, I'll use as a proxy for the West for the moment you know rugged individualism I get I'm an I'm I'm a you know kingdom of my own but then more communal cu- cultures like in Japan and you know Korea and China like they're used to pulling together in the same direction. It's part of their heritage. And it's part of the leadership style, you know, like it or not, it, they are able to move masses of individuals in a direction together and pull off some of the most unimaginable feats. I mean, even just how coronavirus has fared in this in the Asian part of the world versus the Western part of the world is another mm-hmm. example of like, just, I'm willing to wear a mask. I'm willing to stay home for us. And we've seen, I've seen my fellow Americans let me down in that regard where they're not staying home and they're going to spring break or having a happy new year's party. And it's like, no, 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 you're supposed to be thinking about the us right now. And you can see how the West struggles to do that. And the East less of that. Um, I just feel like we're at the beginning of something where I don't know that it's necessarily like. Asia's got their hands on the drive on the steering wheel now and we're just we're just along for the ride. I don't think it's that, but it's much more heavily influential. And like things have already shifted. Like sneaker culture has heavily shifted to Korea right now. And a lot of really interesting fashion and beauty trends, you know, mobile experiences and services and app design specifically. It's just on mm. steroids in China. I was talking to a company. Out of Europe the other day, that basically is just saying Tmall is what we want to be when we grow up. I would never heard another company say, "I want to be a Chinese company mm. when we grow yeah, up." Missing. That that really caught my ear and my eye. Um, and of course, Japan's ability to craft and optimize and obsess and like just love something <laughs> so much—I think it's unrivaled. I cannot think of another culture in the world that is willing to really stay on target so long and so hard. Um, and then also we witnessed a lot of the startup cultures that are across, like Taiwan and Vietnam and Thailand, for example, things that we see here in the United States with Lyft and Uber, they're doing on the back of scooters. Like there's so much ingenuity and so much um, just entrepreneurialism. Uh, it has a really joyful, um, unfinished in- intentionally unfinished feel to it, which is the opposite of what Silicon Valley is always trying to do, be perfect, be crafted, be locked in. Um, it's, a, it's a totally different energy around that entrepreneurialism, which is just really addictive. Um, it was really fun to be around, um, and you could just sense the speed with which people were learning and, and changing their businesses as they go. Um, as a, Again, as a sort of random reference, because I am that future geek that likes to read sci-fi there's a book (laughs) called wind up girl um that takes place in this sort of slightly post-apocalyptic it's not it's not totally all the way there but it's a it's a slightly dark vision of a future but the landscape of this was that bangkok was the center of asia that the other asian cities had kind of crumbled and uh, bangkok had been flooded and so there was like this whole Uh, wall system and levee system that was protecting the city center. And it was the first time I had ever read a science fiction futuristic depiction of the world in which Asia was the center. And it was really important for my brain to, as the story took place, for them to be discussing the West and be discussing the United States and discussing kind of like the Achilles heels that had slowed those markets down and those cultures down. And, um, it was really fun. It was, and it made me realize it's, it's actually not that wild of an idea, especially when you see so much vibrancy, um, and energy coming from the East. So I actually think it's, I'm excited to see where we can be led and taken Mm -hmm. when we have a different, um, point of view, um, it's got so, such a head of steam.
1: I had a quick look of uh, at wind up girl online the other the other day. Definitely add it to the uh, to the reading list um, for this year. So I think what we'll do just now is we'll put a wrap up on part one of our discussion. Uh, you know, please tune in for the second installment, uh, which we're titling "Hacking Humans," where we'll dive into Katie's new Katie's views around human understanding as a means of driving strategy.